So we come in here on a Sunday morning, and I think collectively all of us have, we come in with a similar mentality of at the very least saying, look, there are areas in my life in which I would like to see change. You know, like there's, a, there's broad agreement here. So whether you're here and you're, consider yourself a Christian, a follower of Jesus, someone who believes in the gospel of Christ, or whether you're here and you're not sure what you believe about these things, there's broad agreement that we all have areas of our life in which we desire some kind of change. This is why, as we've talked about before, there's such a, a market. There's such a, a market for the types of things to read or watch that help people make change or transformation. That kind of material is ubiquitous, like it's everywhere. And it, it's, it's understandable that people would clamor for it because, you know, as Christians we come into this space, as believers we come in on a Sunday morning, and we know there are areas of our life that's out of line with our faith. We know there's areas of life in which we struggle. We have deep struggles. We have sin issues that we desire to see put to death, right? And so in the midst of that, we, we want this change. It's, it's so important that we understand this is what that change looks like according to the Scriptures. All right, so at Gospel Life Church, we have this, this answer in the Gospel. How do, we, how do we change? Well, okay, so here's just a real short summary again. I've, I've been referencing it the last three weeks. But the disciple-making pathway that we have at Gospel Life Church isn't so much a pathway in which here are the things that we have to do in order to make growth, and I'll talk about that in a minute, but rather here's a pathway, not a pathway that I have to achieve by ascending some staircase or set of bases or you know, um, moving up to the next level, but rather it's a pathway of the gospel to us, to our hearts. And so first we have gospel proclaimed. The word of God re-centers our worship on the truth of who God is and what he's done. And so on Sunday mornings we come together and what do we hear? Gospel proclaimed. As the word's being proclaimed. And that gospel does a work. Like it, it re-centers our worship on the truth of Christ. But it doesn't stop there, right? It, it has this reverberation, this echoing effect. Gospel echoed. Secondly, throughout the week then, we remind one another of the gospel. We help one another apply it to all of life. And so, of course, we, we move from gospel proclamation to this idea of gospel application, that now I apply the good news of Jesus to everything. Finally, gospel extended as we experience the joy of the gospel, transforming our lives. Our burden grows to share that joy with others. Right? So we talked a little bit about this last week. Going back and listening to last week will help you understand the text this morning. But one way to begin our text is to address a common problem, or I should say even question. Just a question, but sometimes it's a problem in my, in my experience that Christians tend to have about the kind of gospel proclamation or transformation that we talk a lot about at Gospel Life Church. So our, our mission statement is rooting all of life in the good news of Jesus for His glory in the city's good. That all of our life needs to be rooted in the gospel, Rooted deeply in the gospel. Why? Because it's by rooting every aspect of life in the gospel that I start to see change in that area of my life. The gospel is what brings about change. That's how we believe. Like, why is this our mission statement? It's our definition of disciple making, you know, like our shorthand. This is, this is how we believe the Bible describes discipleship in the life of the believer. We proclaim the gospel to one another. We believe upon that gospel in every area of life. We shake out implications of that gospel in every area of life. But you know, the question that, I, that I've gotten 
most consistently for over a decade in sharing this this, uh, scriptural vision for gospel growth with Christians in particular is that people often say this. They say, the idea, this idea of the gospel changing the human heart, you know, that if I'm after some area of change in my life that it's actually gospel growth that brings it about. This idea of the, the gospel bringing about change, it's too impractical. You know, it's too theoretical. It's too much of a, it's too conceptual, you know. It's, 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 it's just a concept. Like, how do I measure it? Like, I need something more measurable. I need something more pragmatic, something more practical. And so the solution then is often to move from this impracticality, which it's, it's not, okay, but listen, from, from this perspective. To move from this impracticality and theory into a practical or tangible checklist of measurable growth items that you have to accomplish for your own growth, that we have to accomplish in order to move forward together. Something that we have to do, right? So if we want to, see, if we want to achieve something together as a church, well, we move from the impracticality of gospel proclamation and preaching to a more practical or tangible ministry method that has a more measurable outcome that we can identify, right? A marketing campaign that has various measurable outcomes for success. That becomes the center of things. But this is one of the many reasons why, listen, I love the Scriptures so much. Because in them we see that this idea of gospel transformation that we talk about all the time, that we talked about last week, in particular related to our Christian witness, it's absolutely practical and tangible. You know, I, I hear often, it's, it's interesting because sometimes as Christians we can use the word pragmatic. Oh, they're just a pragmatist. It's kind of a, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a pejorative. To be a pragmatist is to be bad. But, and I get it. I, I understand what we mean by that. But, but what we come to find is like, the gospel is very pragmatic. It works. Like it actually brings change. It brings life. In fact, we come to find that it's so practical that to adopt some other means that appears to make more sense to us, that isn't so counterintuitive, actually just crumbles before our eyes. It fails to bring about the kinds of results for which we hoped. And then it leaves us like, what happened? I don't understand. I had this set of measurables. You know, like, the gospel is so effective that when we adopt some other means, we don't actually see the results that we initially intended. And, and we see it here at the end of John 1. Like, listen, let's think back on our working definition of revival in, in the text. Gospel proclamation, first mover, right? You have to proclaim gospel to have any of the rest. So gospel proclamation, gospel confrontation. As that gospel is proclaimed, it, it confronts my heart. It confronts my desires, my sinful desires. Gospel invitation that calls me to a newness of life. And then finally, gospel transformation. It doesn't just let me continue to live the way that I've always lived. It changes. It brings change. And I said last week, you know, the text, I said the text next week is going to be pretty similar to this. A lot of the same kind of categories apply, but I I wanted to separate them because I really do believe that John is taking things a step further here. And this is where it connects. If the point of the last section that we looked at together was to show us that the good news transforms us to bear witness, that the gospel shapes us to bear witness, that the gospel brings about the kind of transformation that actually changes fundamentally the nature of how we think about mission and revival and all those things. Well then, this week, the author desires to show us that same witness now in action. Witness in action, that's the 
title of the sermon, Witness in Action. See, very early on in John, we're introduced to this concept of bearing witness. So if you look with me, chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is John the Baptist, not John the author. Okay? There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Okay, and we've already talked a bit about how this court, courtroom language of witness, bearing witness, testimony, is, is a, the same word translated a bit differently at times, common across the New Testament. Te- giving testimony or bearing witness, we see it across the New Testament. But it's especially common here in John's account. So he introduces us first to the concept of bearing witness. That the gospel so transforms us that we bear witness or testify in front of others about its truthfulness. But now he shows us all of these examples of witness bearing in action. You know, so important for the believer. Like, we see it in the testimony. We will see it together in the testimony of the Samaritan woman in chapter 4. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. She says, uh, in effect, don't take my word for it. It's, don't, don't take it just on, on the part of my testimony. Come and see for yourself. We see it in the works of Jesus. In chapter 5, Jesus says, the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. We see it in the works of the Father in the same chapter. Jesus says, the Father who sent me has Himself borne witness about me. We see it in the response of the crowds who are following Jesus around in John chapter 12. John tells us, he says, the crowd that had been with Jesus when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. We see it in the work of the Holy Spirit in chapter 15. Jesus says, but when the Helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. We see it in the ministry of the apostles. Jesus says, he tells them, you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So Jews, Samaritans, Jesus himself, the Father, the Spirit, the Scriptures, the crowds, the disciples. John tells us all of them, all of us, bear witness about him. And we see that witness in action here at the end of chapter 1. As I said, enormously helpful because it, it helps us as believers move from the concept of gospel transforming us to bear witness to now seeing what that witness looks like in real life when the gospel has a hold of us in this way. And when we get these glimpses of the gospel at work in this way, in this text, we see five characteristics of Christian witness. That's the outline we'll be working through. Five characteristics of Christian witness in action. So again, the point here, let me just clarify. The point here will not be won't primarily be, this is what the disciples did, and so therefore this is what we do. But rather, this is how the gospel shapes our hearts to respond. Like, do you want to know what it looks like when, the go- when, when, when Jesus so has a hold of your heart that you can do nothing other than speak? And we start to see those things happening in the text. So, um, the first characteristic. Let's dive right in. First characteristic of Christian witness in action. Verses 43 to 44. The next day... Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. 
All right, first we see, first characteristic, the continuation of Christian witness. Christian witness in the life of God's people does not come to an abrupt halt. There's this cascading effect of it that we see as we look across the Scriptures. And in fact, there's a cascade. I think that's the point of the narrative here. There's a cascading effect in the narrative that begins with the first words of the section. The next day. Right? So this is the fourth day in a row of a sequence. So, so let's trace our steps backwards. Three days ago in the narrative, the Sanhedrin sends this delegation to John the Baptist to question him. Remember that? Two days ago, John sees Jesus coming toward him and he declares, Behold the Lamb of God. So he makes this confession of who Jesus is publicly known. Okay. Yesterday, he repeat, in the text, he repeated that to two of his disciples. Who the, Andrew was one of these disciples, Simon Peter's brother, as well as an unnamed disciple who might be John, maybe even probably is John, but we're not told, told for sure. Both of them follow Jesus. They bring others to him. And now today, the fourth day in the sequence, uh, we have the next set of, of the narrative. And that's the point here. There's this cascading narrative that's moving forward quickly in which this, this mission is continuing on. Um, right, right from the outset of this announcement of who Jesus is, we see this cascading effect of Christian witness. A continuation here. An urgency. There's an urgency. And, and my reason for saying urgency, in part, the reason for saying that the point of these two verses is to demonstrate the continuation of Christian witness in part, is because of what I'm fairly convinced both is happening in this narrative and what I'm pretty convinced is not happening in this narrative. So I hesitate to make any kind of a deal about these things, usually, because I want you to know, <laughs> it's like, it's like and, and you know, yesterday night we all sprung forward, so we're operating on like less sleep than usual. Just bear, please bear with me, okay? Um, I want you to know as your pastor, I really, I'm con convicted by this. I want you to know as your pastor, you really, really can trust your English Bibles. And if you're here and you're a skeptic of Christianity, I want you to know that the English Bible is a reliable translation of the, the Greek manuscript data. I mean, we have really, really great data, and, you know, by and large, the majority, the of major English translations, English Standard Version, New International Version, New American Standard, King James, Christian Standard Bible, Holman Christian Standard. I mean, we probably have a bunch of them, a bunch of major translations here present with us today. They're extremely trustworthy. You do not need a background in the original languages to understand the scriptures. It's helpful, right? But you don't need, it's not necessary. I don't want to discourage you Every now and again, though, in order to help us really drill down into the central theme of the text better, we just need to point out that these are translations. They're translations. And translation work is difficult. It's done by men much smarter than me. Also a really important clarifier. Having said all of that, it's helpful to know when some of the major translations differ in what it looks like in terms of like making the jump from Greek to English. And that doesn't mean that the text is corrupted. You need to understand that. These are translations. So, you know, there's like five or six uh, translations of the Count of Monte Cristo from French into English. And some of the, there's some nerdy, you know, back chat about like, what's the best right way to 
take this French idiom and make it English for the English readers, right, um, amongst the translators. But that doesn't mean that, you know, Alexander Dumont's original writing on this was somehow corrupted. So this is, it's translation work. Translation work is really difficult. True for all, all kinds of translation. But in an ideal world, I recognize not all worlds are ideal, but in an ideal world, translators will do this without making interpretive decisions for the readers uh, as much as possible. In other words, especially as it relates to the scriptures, whenever you have an ambiguous meaning of something in the Greek that could be interpreted a few different ways on the basis of the language itself, and whenever that reads clearly, I think an ideal approach to translation is to leave the ambiguity intact and allow the reader to do the interpreting. That's my own perspective on this. You obviously have to leave the ambiguity intact in a way that's readable. There are times in translation where that's really hard, but I don't think this is one of them. Okay, so the Greek literally reads this way in 43. I'm not making this up. It's just, it's true. It reads, you can set your eyes on the English uh, translation. Some of you are going to have this, probably. The next, and, and you were confused when we did the ESV reading. Okay, so. Here's how the Greek actually reads. The next day, he decided to go to Galilee and found Philip. Jesus said to him, follow me. Let's read that again. The next day, he decided to go to Galilee and found Philip. Jesus said to him, follow me. That's actually how the Greek reads. And I, you know, do you see the difference between the two? Now, if you have an NASB, if you have a legacy, that's a recent NASB update. If you have a Holman Christian Standard Bible, that's actually what your text says. And some of your Bibles even have a footnote here to make sure you understand that the text is ambiguous. I can't believe mine does not, but some of yours do. Um, that's, that they'll say the literal reading is ambiguous, that he, we're not sure if it's Jesus, you know, in verse 43. And I believe that should be left open-ended for the reader. Uh, because the question is, okay, uh, the question is, to whom does the he, the first he in verse 43 refer? The next day, he decided to go to Galilee and found Philip. A few translations, ESV, NIV, have gone ahead and favored Jesus as the answer to that interpretive question. But I don't think that's the most natural reading. I think NAS has it right. I think Holman has it right. Legacy has it right. I don't think it's the best fit with the context. I think the he in verse 43 is more likely re referring to Andrew. And so we start to see the problems when we make interpretive decisions for the reader. Um, can be this. It can be this. Uh, I think it's more likely referring to Andrew. I think it's the most natural flow of the narrative. Strengthens what John is saying thematically. So that, just to make my case real briefly, back up to verse 40. Okay, Verse 40 of chapter 1. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John, you shall be called Cephas. The next day, he decided to go to Galilee and found Philip. Jesus said to him, follow me. Okay, so hang on. The flow of, follow the flow of the narrative with me a little bit. Andrew, text says, first found his own brother, Simon, told him about Jesus. The first is important because it implies he's going to find more people. Remember, the text is sequential. It's cascading. It's, it's continuing a story. 
So the first person he finds is his brother, brings him to Jesus. Jesus tells him something. On the next day, he decided to find another person. He brings him to Jesus. Jesus tells him something. Later on in this section that I'm going to continue to preach on, the person he goes to finds another person. Same word, found, found, found. Brings him to Jesus. Jesus tells him something. There's a clear pattern here, right? Also, look at verse, I won't get into the grammar, but the grammar is also very strong in my opinion. Also, look at verse 44. The text tells us Philip was from the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip's from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So the, the idea that Andrew decided to go to the city where he was from to find someone he likely knew makes even more sense of the context. And adding to the strength of this, it fits within the framework of what John is attempting to show his readers. So, as Carson writes here, he says, that this view is correct. Okay, so he's talking about Andrew being the subject. And all I really needed was Carson to say that this view is, no, I'm just kidding. That this view is correct is supported by the fact that everyone else who comes to Jesus in this chapter does so because of someone else's witness. If Andrew is the subject, there are no exceptions. Theologically, the evangelist is reinforcing his theme of the importance of bearing witness. In other words, you know, later on, Jesus issues a formal call for the disciples to follow. But here the word is spreading by way of the cascading witness. Everyone else in this chapter comes to Jesus because of the witness of another person. John the Baptist bearing witness to Andrew. Andrew bearing witness to Peter. Philip bearing witness, as we'll see in a second, to Nathaniel. This would be the only exception in the text. But to make an, an exception, you have to adopt an alternate reading of the Greek that has less support. Okay, but I'll acknowledge, let's just step back, whether you take Jesus here or not, I'm making the case because I think it really does strengthen the center of John's argument. But, but let's say it's Jesus as the subject. Either way, this theme of the significance of Christian witness in the life of God's people is certainly present. And it reminds me of Romans 10, which we, re you know, we read part of Romans 10 together collectively in our liturgy. But Paul continues, he says, how then will they call on him who they have not believed? How are they to believe in him who they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching, you know? How are they to preach unless they're sent? There's an urgency. There's a continuation of mission. As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. There's an urgency to Christian witness for those who've not heard. Why? Here's the question that, that I want us to ask ourselves. Why would Andrew hear this gospel proclaimed, go and see Jesus himself, spend time with Jesus, and immediately think, who do I know that I could find to tell this story? Oh, my brother, Simon Peter, you know. Why would he then also say, from my perspective, who else do I know from my hometown that I could find and tell? Because if his words to his brother are true, you know, that we unpacked last week, if it's, he told his brother, we have found the Messiah, and caught up with that is all kinds of emotion, all... For, someone in the, for a Jewish person in the first century to say, we found the Messiah. This is the one that we've been waiting for for hundreds of years. If this is true, if it's true that he found the one at the center of all the scriptures, there's, an, there's a sense of real urgency to it. People need to know. They're in unique need of him. And the reason urgency is the right word to use is because when you come to know the truth of who Christ is, you also start to understand more the truth of who we are apart from Him, that the reason we have such a unique need of Him is bound up in our inability to follow Him apart from His grace. But then the more 
we see him, the more we see that he's full of grace, he's full of mercy. And as we apply the truth claims of the gospel to our hearts, we, we see the gospel at work in us to give us the sense of urgency that others might know, not out of some kind of like drudgery, like, oh, I better do this, but like joy. The same joy that Andrew experiences in coming to see Jesus and spend time with him. He wants his brother to have that. Philip to have that. Which is why we now shift, secondly, so the continuation of Christian witness. Now also the, sec- the central claim. The central claim of Christian witness. We, we've seen the continuation. It's cascading. The same words are used to describe it. Andrew found Peter, verse 41. Someone, I'd argue Andrew, found Philip in verse 43. Now Philip, in the next verse, found Nathanael. But here we see why it's so urgent. Look at verse 45. Here again, Philip found Nathanael. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. So the point of this verse, centrally, is the claim that Philip's making about Jesus. This stands as the central claim of the Christian witness. We've talked about this in in weeks past. It's not the proclamation of good advice or even primarily a list of propositions, but rather it's the proclamation of a person in history. We found him. It's him as he was revealed to us in the Scriptures. It's the one about whom Moses and the law and the prophets, theological shorthand for the entire Hebrew Scriptures, wrote about. This is what everything's been pointing us to. And Jesus himself in the text is going to give Nathaniel a direct example of how the Scriptures point uniquely to him. He's going to back up Philip's testimony in just a little bit. But Philip is saying, this is the one for whom we've been waiting. And just to make sure we understand that the good news is a person in history. You know, not theoretical, not a concept. Philip identifies him in the way that Someone would have identified another person in the first century. The name of his hometown and the name of his father. Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. You can go find him. And Ultimately, he invites him to do that, as we'll see, because these kind of claims, right? These kind of claims have this effect of sending us. But these kind of claims will often also come with a contention. Here's where we see another characteristic of Christian witness, the contention to Christian witness. We talked a little bit about it last week, right? But when the gospel is proclaimed to our hearts, it also confronts our hearts. Look at the first part of verse 46. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You know, it turns out that looking down on someone, thinking less of them as a person, as a result of where they're from, as a result of their ethnicity, as a result of their family, it's not a new phenomenon. And you know, it's worth noting at this point that Nathaniel is from Galilee. And we have all kinds of first century examples of people in Judea who looked down their noses big time. And that's a nice way of saying it. At people from Galilee. They were viewed as trash, as garbage, as a result of where they were from. But you know, in the same way as today, rather than learning his lesson from that and thinking, you know, It's not really just to view someone not as a whole person with value and intrinsic worth simply on the basis of their ethnicity or where they're they're from. 
where they were born. What does Nathaniel do? He just finds the person who's more despised than him. You know, so that he can be above someone else. And that's what happens. We learn how to do this at a very early age. I mean, this happens in elementary school. Kids pick on another kid, and that kid just, what's the response? I'll just find the kid underneath me to pick on so that I'm not at the bottom of the, right? I mean, there's this order that we have where it's like something in us gets exposed, so then we're always constantly trying to be above someone else. What does Nathaniel ultimately need? He needs the gospel. He needs to hear what Paul proclaims that we read together this morning. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and blessedly riches. All who call on him for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Why? Because the gospel levels the playing field. He needs to hear the image of God. The fact that we have this rock-solid, irreducible glory about us because we've been created in God's image, and then that personhood has intrinsic value regardless of where we were born or what family we come from or our, our social status. But he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? In a sense, this is the kind of gospel confrontation we saw last week. Nathaniel hears that Philip has found the Messiah, the one for whom they've been waiting forever, essentially, since Genesis 3.15 when it's first proclaimed that this chosen one will come. And he's a person walking around in history right now. And he's from Nazareth? You know, like, all this initial skepticism just builds and builds, and you know, we experience much of the same thing. Many of us experienced this kind of skepticism the first time our hearts were confronted with Christianity, with the good news of Jesus. You're telling me that God came to earth and died on a cross and rose from the dead? You know? Like we sit across from a non-believing friend and think about the nature of what we're telling them. That God himself became flesh. That Jesus of Nazareth was fully man, yeah, but he was fully God. And he lived the life that you should have lived but failed to. And because you failed to live that life, you're due judgment. But he died the death that you deserve to die on your behalf so that you can have life in him. And God rose him from the dead confirming that he is who he says he is, and also inviting you into a newness of life that begins now and goes on for all eternity. And by the way, he'll be returning to make all things new, to bring our resurrected bodies back, to bring a material recreation to this planet. To say that these are big claims is an understatement. So we shouldn't be either surprised or annoyed with those who initially wave off this claim and say, yeah, I don't think so. We shouldn't be made uncomfortable by that. The fact that when we share this, people are, eh, I'm really skeptical of that. These are big claims. What should we do instead? This is where we see the call of Christian witness. The rest of verse 46. What does Philip do? He says to him, and again, I'd argue this is, this is Jesus at work in him. Philip says, come and see. Jesus said this. Philip repeats it. It's a simple call. It repeats for us what Jesus said last week, and we highlight it here to say, again, when it comes to the doubts and skepticisms of your non-believing friends about whom you care deeply in the same way that Andrew cared for his brother Philip, in the same way that Philip cares for Nathaniel, in the same way that Andrew cares for his brother and for Philip, in the same way that Philip cares for Nathaniel, he wants him to know Jesus, right? We want our non-believing friends to know Jesus. And in the midst of that, you need to know and understand 
you're not somehow responsible to untie the knot of your non-believing friend's unbelief. You know, like, I think we sometimes think that's our job in evangelism. To untie the knot of skepticism and doubt, to pull apart, to make it all perfect so that our friends aren't going to have, quite, like, we'll iron out all the problems that they, you know, so that they can come to faith. And we put that on ourselves. Pull apart the thread of unbelief in all these areas in which they have issues. But Jesus is the one who does that. Not you. You know, uh, your job is to do what Andrew and Philip does here. The gospel at work in you prompts us to invite our friends to see him. Bring them to him. Open the word to them and introduce them to Jesus. Let Jesus himself, as they see his heart for them, as the Spirit reveals it, do the work of unraveling all of that and providing the grace for them to believe. And over time, you know, even as things don't land well, yeah, Jesus said that, and, and, and that doesn't land well with me, but I trust him. And over time, I come to, to love his word, even the areas in which, like, initially I hate. Why? Because I love and trust Jesus. This call is simple. You know, we have opportunities coming up for us at Gospel Life Church to extend that kind of simple call. Easter is less than a month away. April 9th, it's March 12th today. Holy Week is going to have so many, just be filled with opportunities for us to invite non-believing friends and neighbors and co-workers to come and see Jesus and his heart. We're going to be preaching through John chapter 3 over Holy Week. This is an opportunity for the Word to reveal Christ to our friends who don't know him. And, and you know, I, I, my, my hope is that the simplicity of this call really should free us. That as we're even now starting to think, who can I bring? What neighbors can I bring? What friends can I bring? Who can I start these conversations with? To, because, because for the same reason that Andrew's thinking, like, who else do I know? You know, right? Like, this gospel prompts in us this response of, like, people uniquely need Jesus. It frees us in the midst of that to not have to worry about having all the right answers to every question. Philip doesn't debate Nathaniel here. He doesn't lecture him with respect to his thoughts about Nazareth. Like, it's, it's useful to know why you believe what you believe. It's good and useful to have answers to certain questions because the Scriptures give us those answers and we can be confident in them. And it's good to even provide those answers to friends who are doubting. I'm not... You know, history gives us answers. The order of the created universe gives us answers. Like, it's not bad to know why you believe what you believe. It can be quite useful. But in the end, you just need to know it's not your responsibility because it's, it's not a work you can accomplish. You're never going to be able to debate or persuade someone into the kingdom. If it, if it was possible for us to do that, then it would be our work and not his, but it's his work. Trust him with them. And that's where we see finally he can be trusted, the consequence of Christian witness. This is the rest of the passage in which Nathaniel now engages with Jesus himself. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming, starting in verse 47. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathaniel said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see 
heaven opened. The angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Note here, Jesus does not ridicule Nathaniel's skepticisms or doubts, despite knowing full well Nathaniel's skepticism and doubt. You know, but rather by grace, he actually does the opposite. He praises Nathaniel for not being duplicitous, for not being hypocritical. He has doubt in part because he doesn't want to just give himself to any claim of messiahship, and there's wisdom in that. In the first century, especially, where there's all kinds of false messiahs. That's part of what I think Jesus means by an Israelite in whom there's no deceit. The way in which that word deceit or guile was used in a first century context like hypocrisy, duplicity. He wasn't speaking out of both sides of his mouth. In other words, Philip or Nathaniel was saying what he meant. More to be said on that in the comments in a minute because of what Jesus says about himself. It kind of ties back in. But the point here is that Nathaniel is taken aback. And he asks Jesus, how do you know me? And apparently at some point earlier than that, Nathaniel was under a fig tree. And it's true that, you know, fig tree... Sometimes you'll hear, well, it's, it, this is symbolic. He's speaking with symbolism because fig tree is an Old Testament representation of a home or the house that you live in, the place that you live. I don't think so. I think here the point is, Jesus had supernatural knowledge of Nathaniel's prior activity in ways that Nathaniel knew he should not know about this. We're not entirely sure the whole scope of it. But he knew what, where Nathaniel was and what he was doing. And Nathaniel knew that there was no way he should have known that. And this blows Nathaniel out of the water. And he says to Jesus, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Nathaniel can't possibly know all that's bound up with these words. And I'm going to let these words kind of unbind themselves as we go through John because they'll be repeated. But this is a, here in this text, it's a first century confession of belief. That Jesus is the Messiah. These are Old Testament claims that are directed at the Messiah. They describe the Messiah, the, the promised one of God who is to come and rescue. The true Davidic King, the Son of God come to save. And so once again, rather than John the Baptist or Andrew or Philip being the ones who persuade the individual into faith, they simply point to Jesus and it's when that person in question sees Jesus and talks with Him that everything starts to change. They point rather than persuade. They direct rather than debate. And Jesus is the one who does the work. Remember, it's His grace that motivated the urgency to begin with. He does all of the work. He does the work of prompting our spirits with the gospel. He does the work of then engaging with our non-believing friends. And I think sometimes, at least in my life, there are times when I've been withholding in my witness because I don't trust ultimately what it comes down to for me is that I haven't trusted Jesus with my non-believing friends. I think they're going to come to Jesus and be embarrassed. But, but truth be told, typically it's my stumbling block. Me is a stumbling block that keeps my non-believing friends from even getting there in the first place. So to be able to lay down my rights, lay down my privileges, so that there's no stumbling block on the way to Jesus himself, proclaiming him, this is where the power is. We can trust our non-believing friends to Christ. When these disciples get a closer look, they become convinced that the testimony is true. Jesus says, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. He said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heaven open and angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. One of the, one of the most encouraging things that happens in evangelism, in, sharing, in, in bearing witness about the truth of Christ. Have you ever had this experience, you know, where 
you share your testimony with a non-believing friend about the way in which Christ has shaped your life, the way in which He's brought joy, the way in which He's brought peace. Something happened and you share this testimony of Christ. The way in which you were able to find peace and reconciliation with God through the cross and the way in which that changes everything for you. Only to then have the non-believing friend who is directed to Christ come back and say, yeah, it's true. Jesus brought me that peace. He brought me that joy, right? Um, This is what happens here. Jesus validates Philip's claim that here's the one about about whom Moses was writing. You know, Philip's claim to Nathaniel was this is the one Moses wrote about. And then what does Jesus do? Who's Genesis 28, essentially, refers back to Genesis 28 that Moses wrote. And I talked about it a few weeks ago already. I won't go into detail, but we remember in, in Genesis 28, Jacob falls into this deep sleep, has this vision of the staircase in which God descends to be with him in this place. And what we come to find is that God had to descend to be with Jacob in order for God to be present with Jacob. Why? Because Jacob was a deceiver. That's what his name meant. Is usurper, supplanter, deceiver. Do you remember this? And we preached through Genesis like a long time ago. But by God's grace, so he couldn't, he couldn't climb that. He, he couldn't make, by way of his own effort, he couldn't find his way to God. So God, by grace, descends to be with him. The text says the angels went back and forth, mediation between God and man in that place, despite the fact that Jacob was a deceiver. And now we see that the ultimate meditation or mediation between God and man, the true and better staircase, is Jesus himself. Jesus says, I am he of whom Moses was writing. I'm the one who descends from heaven in order that I might be present with my people. I'm the one through whom you can now have access to God. But this prompts the question, right? You know, because this also gives us, it gives us some more context in terms of Jesus' comment. Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Jacob was a deceiver, actually. That's what his, his name meant. But God intervenes to give him a new name, a new identity. He's present with Jacob and he gives Jacob a new identity. Here, I think this statement, in a, in a way, it's play on words to connect back. It's less a descriptive statement, kind of like we saw last week. Less a descriptive statement about what Jesus sees in Nathaniel, and more a declarative statement about what Jesus would make him, giving him a new identity. How? Well, because all this prompts the question, how would Nathaniel and the other disciples see heaven open? After all, there had to be a curtain in the Holy of Holies to separate God's presence from his people because of their sin. God couldn't dwell with those who'd rebelled against him. So how would Jesus offer this kind of mediation? How would Jesus be the one through whom we can now be reconciled to God? Well, he would do it at the cross, whereupon after his death, the curtain would be torn in two. We'd now be able to have life with God. So the sense of urgency is present within Christian witness because we know our sin stands in the way of God's presence with us. But Jesus came in order to deal with that central problem so that we can be reconciled to him and have life. So that we can now share that life with others. And this is precisely what we proclaim to one another at the table each week. 